Hey, it's Brian from Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, letting you know that if you are not completely tired of hearing me talk about rock and roll, there's another place you can do it this week because I got to guest on the excellent Only Three Lads podcast. We'll throw a link in the show notes, but you can find a, a very long episode where me and Brett and Greg from Only Three Lads talk about our top five releases from Sire Records, all to honor the late Seymour Stein, who passed away at the beginning of this month. It's a lot of fun. Check out their show, find them on Facebook, and enjoy this episode, and then, you know, scope their back catalog. It's the Only Three Lads podcast with me, Brian, from Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, on this week's episode. Go check it out now. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it is Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, your home for sex, drugs, and innuendo, and rumor, and rock and roll. Let's talk about rock stardom. Uh, many things that rock stardom offers, right? Uh, I think the most famous are the things that we opened the show with, talking about, which are sex and drugs. But I'd argue that it also offers this ability to get what you want, or to get things done that you want to see done. And I mean that like in general and specific ways, right? Like we talked about this on the show before. There's this history of patronage in rock and roll. Wealthy people supporting the things they're passionate about. I was at a I was at a couture fashion show this weekend that was really dope. But it was wealthy people supporting people who, you know, probably weren't as wealthy. And that's that's just been a tradition for a long, long time. This has sometimes plays in the favor of musicians, right? Like who's the band that um that like had a patron who was paying them to figure shit out? Uh, that was super drag, and I was paying them. No, it's, it's super <laughs> it tramp, it's it wasn't super tramp super drag. which is the weirdest thing. Were you, because once you're like, "Why is super tramp a thing?" and you read why super tramp's a thing, it's it's actually quite fascinating. Yeah. So yeah, well, and yeah, that's a whole. That may be a whole other episode, but I it, that is a very interesting conundrum, right? Because super tramp was sort of weird, but it was like they could afford to be weird because they had somebody paying yeah. for everything, which is super dope. But uh, now we're going to talk about the opposite. Where right. the guys with the bank accounts are the the rock star guys, right? So we've just we've gotten several letters about you know things that sort of like veer into this universe. So I thought we would just put them together for an episode where we'll, we'll talk about a few different inquiries that sort of all circle back to this idea of rock stars being able to support crazy vision that they have, right? Um, so you know the way to get involved in the show. It's where the story guys at gmail First letter is from Kelly. Here it is. You guys have been talking a lot on the show recently about shifty managers. Yes, we have. Uh, That's correct. <laughs> I know Alan Klein's name has come up. When, when did that? I, I guess it was the Tony DeFreeze David Bowie episode where we right. took a that's, detour. I think that's the beginning. Yeah. 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 Um, isn't there some story about John Lennon convincing Alan Klein to fund and produce weird, incomprehensible movies? Do you, do you, I, I know you know the Beatles and you know Lennon really well. So do you know this story? No, there's a lot of things about this I don't know. So I'm really, I've been pretty excited about it. Okay, so let's start with Alan Klein. Because we probably just need to, we haven't done a full episode on Alan Klein. We've talked about him in the past. So give us like cliff notes real quick. Sure. Super interesting. Uh, let me tell you the thing that's sexy about him, just knocking down the panties. He was an accountant. <laughs> I so, love this no. about him, that he comes into the industry not through, you know, there's so many people who come in through it sort of bullheadedly, right? Like he almost accidentally comes into it but yeah he comes into it as an accountant right he's a square right but he's not a square 
He's not at all. Mm-mm. He's like Peter Grant. So, but he was he was doing accounting for like singers and and celebrities and stuff. And then he met like a promoter, a DJ guy in New York, and they started doing R and B live shows up and down the East Coast. And that is how he met Sam Cooke. And then he launched his his uh, career. He was he was Sam Cooke's manager. Yeah, Sam. And then the Stones. He works with the Rolling Freaking Stones. And eventually he gets to join the Beatles team. This has to happen after Brian Epstein dies, right? Right. And for those of you that don't know, haven't listened to other Alan Kine episodes, let me just catch you up. All you need to know is that he fucks everyone over. Everyone (laughs) always, all the time. He fucked over Sam Cooke. He fucked over the Rolling Stones. He fucked over the Beatles. And and if there is a purgatory where rock and roll guys have to go, and there's a cemetery, and there's an Alan Kine, great, like, grave marker, it says, Alan Kline, he probably fucked you too. He he did it. What a swarmy guy. And we're gonna I know we're gonna keep talking about it because Alan doesn't leave no, man. the Beatles universe no, immediately. He, he doesn't because he's always John's guy, right? Hiring him is right. John's idea. We talked about this on the Tony DeFreeze episode, I think. And John will not only tell Klein first, like he's the first guy that John calls when he's like, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna break up the Beatles. Uh but he also continues to do business with Klein after. Now, eventually things go south, right? Like when when right. when do things sort of fall apart with him? It, the thing that people didn't know was that they actually were around together in, in uh, litigation in the early 70s. So it was like 73. And then that they still were in a legal battle where Klein had to sue all four guys oh my God. because they had to officially separate. And so that was still in play even then. Well, and this is where McCartney wins, right? Like ultimately, if you have to pick, McCartney sort of wins because McCartney is the guy who's like, we should not do business with this dude. He's the guy who refuses to do business when the other three of them do business with him at first, and then he eventually gets roped in. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Uh, We're here to talk about a a much happier time when things are still great between John Lennon and Alan Clyde. 1970. Okay, we're doing something else that is... For you, right? Okay, we're going to a street corner in New York City. I want to know if you know this street corner. 19th and 8th Avenue in Manhattan. Do you know that corner? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's Chelsea. Uh-huh. And there was a diner there, uh, and it is now a Mexican restaurant. And but, you, you but used to like, hang out there or what? No. I, well, I, yeah, I used to walk by it because I used to work down the street, so that was a walk to the subway. Okay. And so, But the la- I, did the, I did the walk like to go like do the thing where you used to live in New York to see like where you used to work, to see it. Right. Like, hey, is it still there and all that shit? Yeah. And, and I went and I was like, oh my gosh, that diner is now a Mexican. Like, it looks like a New York diner like out of a movie, and it's not. It's a, it's a Mexican restaurant. Right on. So it's unmistakable. But it, that's not what we're talking about. Well, we're right, not talking about right next to it is the Joyce Theater. But back... Back in the 70s, when we're talking about it, it was known as the Elgin. 600-seat movie theater. It opens in 42, and when it starts, it's like there to show first run Hollywood Fair, right? But then it becomes a Spanish-speaking cinema in the 50s and into the 60s. And in 68, new owner shows up, this guy Ben Barinholtz. Fascinating cat who sort of changes the game when it comes to experimental cinema by providing a platform. He sort of like brings experimental cinema into the mainstream in New York City. Uh, Kenneth Anger, Jonathan Demme, Martin fucking Scorsese, all of them get their first shot at the Elgin. Wow. And, and it, what's so cool is in the early days, it was Ben himself finding these films. He was doing this. It wasn't like he had a staff or anything. It was all him. And so that's how he gets into our story. Because one night, 
he goes to the Modern Museum of Art, MoMA, and he sees a film. It's a private showing. He sees a film by a guy named Alejandro Jodorowsky. And if you're not familiar with this guy, <laughs> this is the best way to describe him. Do you want to do you want to try describing him, or do you just want me to read what Steve Rhodes wrote in The Guardian in 2009? I looked at the notes, and you have to read it. Sure. <laughs> Here, this is actually a quote from a guy describing what it's like to watch a Jodorowsky film. If you've never seen one of his movies, they're difficult to explain. You could start by throwing together Sergio, Sergio Leone, uh, Luis Buñuel, Heronimus Botch and Buddha, I am butchering things, sorry, and perhaps spiking their Kool-Aid for good measure. They're filled with wild beasts, cosmic symbolism, freaks, naked women, and spiritual masters. Where else, for example, could you find a reenactment of the conquest of Latin America with costumed frogs and chameleons, or a geriatric hermaphrodite squirting milk from breasts that appear to be the heads of ocelots? I love you, Brian. Because over a decade ago, we decided, let's have a podcast with stand-up comedians. And then we've done other stuff, all kinds of things. And then we decided, let's have this rock and roll podcast. Oh we tell like, rock and roll stories. What the, what the hell did you just read? So- a geriatric hermaphrodite squirting milk from breast? I wanted to say that entire phrase again. Oh, my God, right? <laughs> Messed up. I, so I, we need a little background on this dude. So if you don't know who he is... It's very important to, to understand who he is because this is essential to understanding this story. Same writer in that same article when he's describing the films. This is how he, des- how he describes Jodorowsky himself. A Russian Jew who grew up in Chile and P- Paris. His career spans the surrealist movement, mime, experimental theater, psychedelia, comic books, and mystical therapy. And takes in figures such as Marcel Marceau, Dennis Hopper, Salvador Dali, and Marilyn Manson, just to name a few. Early in his career, he will co-found a form of theater in the late 60s called the Panic Movement. I'm now reminded that I think I listened to a band called the Panic Movement. No, maybe they're called the Panic Division. Anyway, this, in the 60s, was a surrealist performance art that basically created stage events that were meant to freak people out. (laughs) So, like, they would be violent and shocking. So you can sort of guess where this is headed if this guy is a filmmaker, right? He starts drawing comics in, in 67. And then he directs this film called Frando Elise. It gets banned in Mexico. So his response, literally his fucking response is, well, fine, my next movie is going to be a Western because it's the 60s, right? So he's like, I'm going to make a Western because everyone will come see it because everyone loves a Western. And so he creates the weirdest fucking Western of all time. Thus is born something that will literally be called for the rest of time to today in 2023 acid Western. And it's, it's all birthed out of this movie he creates called El Topo. And this, this is the private showing that Ben Barenholt stumbles into at MoMA one night. And while he's stumbling in, a lot of people are stumbling out because they cannot handle how weird it is. But Ben is totally into it. And he gets all the info he needs to make a few phone calls because he wants to have the rights so he can show it at the Elgin but they won't sell it to him. So instead, he negotiates down to just have the opportunity to show it at the Elgin. But he's super savvy. This guy is great. Go read about him, because super interesting person who understands that for a movie like this to get any traction, it takes convincing people that like they're the only ones that know about it, right? Like you and I have had this with music. You know, like we find something and we're like, this is cool. Because I found it, right? Oh, yeah, sure. It's yours. Yeah, and I think we've probably done this with film, too. I remember I 
me and a couple buddies watched that movie Suburbia in like the mid nineties that was like really early Nikki Cat and Giovanni Rabisi and like a bunch of other people who later would go on to, you know, like be on sitcoms and stuff. But it was like this weird I forget who made it, but there's somebody out there listening yelling at the yelling at their phone saying like, I know who made that. But anyway, it, it's great. But I remember thinking it was really cool because I thought nobody else knew about it, right? Like we had found it buried at the Blockbuster. Well, was there a movie like that for you? Yes, it was Private School with Phoebe Cates and Matthew <laughs> Modine. Absolutely. 100%. I got news for you. I think a lot, a lot of people saw that. Uh, yeah, I know. It's just like, I just seem to be the only guy in the, only guy in the neighborhood that had a copy of it. That <laughs> uh, made, made you temporarily popular, I'm sure. Yeah, it did. Uh, so here's here's what he does. Instead of regular showings at El Topo, he starts showing it at 1 a.m. and midnight because That's he wants genius. yeah he wants people to stop. So this is literally like let's just stop for a second and acknowledge this. This is the it's beginning Manhattan, right? It's, it's Manhattan. This is the beginning of the midnight movie. So like some of you, some of us may still be lucky enough to live in a town with a theater that still does midnight movies. We live in a town that recently was showing the room with someone that was in the room at midnight, like two weeks ago, right? Like that's the midnight movie tradition. And it was, it really was born out of Baron Holtz and the Elgin in Manhattan in the late sixties, early seventies. And this movie probably never could have imagined idiocracy being the midnight movie, but there we are. Right. So, this works because people stumble out of this theater and they feel like they're the only ones that have that are in on the secret and they have to go tell people about it, right? The film premieres on the December 18th of 1970. It's going to run continuously seven days a week until the end of June 1971. But it doesn't take very long for it to catch on. Early days of 71, it starts, it starts selling out every night. Certain big names start showing up to see what the buzz is all about when it comes to this weird Western. And one of those people cramming in at the wee hours of the morning well two of those people are john lennon and yoko ono no way see this is the thing i've never really heard about oh. i'm excited okay keep going dude so in 2020 larushka ivan zaida wrote a great piece for the bbc it's in the show notes read the whole thing but i'll read a bit to you now because it really sets the scene for this better than anything else i ran across here it goes new york 1971 it's somewhere around 1 a.m., and John Lennon is sitting with Yoko Ono at the Elgin Theater on 8th Avenue about to watch El Topo for the third time. The cinema is packed, lines snake around the block. The original midnight movie has been selling out seven days a week for months, thanks to devotees re-watching it an average of 11 times. One girl has seen it 21 times. It's the trippiest ticket in town. He goes on to, to explain this. A thick cloud of marijuana smoke obscures the screen on which Lennon watches, or rather experiences some of the most bizarre images yet committed to celluloid. A horseman in black, a naked little boy clinging to his back, rides across a desert to ritualistically bury a teddy bear. A man with no arms carries a man with no legs, I don't know how that works, towards Nirvana. A mystic stands encircled by a dead white rabbits. A grizzled cowboy ecstatically sniffs a pink high-heeled shoe. Of course. <laughs> I knew that last part was coming. Okay. So, right. so we we need to talk about. Holy cow! We, we need. I, I need your help here. We need to talk a little bit about where John's head is at during this time, right? Talk, talk about the New York period. Um. So they had just moved there. Oh, he and Yoko, uh, like, right? Right, right. Okay. They they just officially moved there, and this is before the scream therapy, all that that happened. <laughs> we, and then we don't even have time it, to talk about that. But go check out. 
primal what what do you call it primal therapy google think, that yeah um i have trouble at a certain point where i just unplug mm-hmm. from from a little of it so so this is where they were they were jumping into politics and part of that yeah. he gets caught up in stuff like protesting when oz magazine gets prosecuted on obscenity charges and so he's in there in the middle of the stuff and i'm assuming they're bugging his phones already so that has to be when he sees this movie i guess right well and, and i think that's why he wants to support it right because he has just gotten out of this whole situation where he has been like openly talking about how censorship is bad because of Oz, right? And this movie's fucking weird. And there's like, if you, I'll just go ahead and say this. I actually didn't put this anywhere in the notes or warn you about this, but you may know this. So later, this movie and this director will come under fire because he makes this comment about how there's a rape scene in this movie, and he's like, oh yeah, that was like a real rape. Because, like, he's always trying to shock everybody, right? And, like, yeah. later, years later, he'll wheel that back. He's like, that's not actually what I meant, right? But so that's the sort of stuff we're talking about. I just say that to say that this is the sort of bizarre crap that this guy is up to. And so I, th- I think when he sees this, Lennon is, like, connects with, like, this is something I need to support, right? And that's what we're, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about rock stars being able to support uh, what is happening, uh, you know what something that they feel is important because they have the resources to do it. So he calls his business manager, Alan Klein, who we already talked about, and he knew that it wasn't going to be hard to get Alan Klein on board for a right. film project. Right, because there's backstory. Yeah, t- Klein. take it away. Take it away. So he wanted to get in the movies, right? He got to get in the pictures. <laughs> he got to get because, in the pictures because, for God's sakes, you know who else got in the pictures. His name's Tom Parker, for God's sakes, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Right? And he That's made a great terrible, terrible movies <laughs> for his client. Anyway, <laughs> but that was... So anyway, he wanted to get in the movies. That motherfucker tried to buy MGM. No Did way. Did you know that was a thing? Really? Yes. yes. He tried, like, Me- Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Like, when? In the 60s? Rawr. <laughs> yes. That was... Alan Klein. So say what you say about his, about him as being a person and a manager or whatever. Like obviously he was a great businessman, but his idea was to use the film as a place to invest client money. So in '67 he made a bid for MGM, right? And he got rebuffed because it was a Seagram's heir who got control. Oh, that's of it. Seagram's. right. Right. Um, you know, when I think of Seagram's, I always think of the commercial with Bruce Willis, but I should always think about that they control a lot of stuff. They anyway, do. so so Alan Klein buys a record label instead, right? And then uh, that's shit. how you get Apco, right? And so yeah. that's there's the Stones and no, there's that. It's very good that you provided this background because you're you'll read that like Lennon convinced or told Klein to do this, but I don't think so. With this backstory. I think Klein was 100% on board very quickly. I don't think it took a lot of arm twisting. So Lennon and Klein decide they're going to buy the U.S. distribution rights to El Topo. But that's not all. This is Jodorowsky in a 2007 interview. Quote, I was so lucky because Yoko Ono was a conceptual artist, and they were very interested in intellectual and spiritual things. John Lennon told his manager to give me $1 million to do whatever I would like to create next. And, and, and so that's what happens. So he not only gets this shown across America due to John Lennon, but he now gets to make another movie. And he makes this movie called The Holy Mountain. 
So is this uh, one of those acid trip movies where is Magic <laughs> Alex? Is he the sound? Did he did he do the soundtrack? Is this Dude, weird. Great call. I wish it yeah. was Magic Alex. It is. It is another wild, high concept acid trip movie. Of course, it's like here we go. It's based on a 16th century spiritual treatise by Spanish Catholic mystic and poet Saint John of the Cross. <laughs> Or as we would say today, the ghost of Pope John Paul II, Billy Bob Thornton, and Kid Rock, take Manhattan. What the <laughs> hell does any of that mean, dude? Okay, so, so it's like a modern day I, version. Who the fuck of it? knows? Okay, the, let, okay, let me just tell you how they prepare for this movie. So, before the principal photography would even start, Jodorowsky and his wife spend a week not sleeping as they are directed by a Japanese Zen master to go without sleep for a week, which at a certain point is not even possible. The the central members of the cast will spend three months doing various Zen, Sufi, and yoga exercises. After the training, the group lives for one month communally in Jodorowsky's home. So everybody comes and lives there. And he also administered psilocybin mushrooms to the actors during the shooting of one of the scenes. Okay, I just want everything, all the prep here for this movie to happen. It was explained, Brian. I want all this to happen to me. I want a week with a Japanese Zen master. I want three months of just zenning out somewhere. I want to just zone out, like look at a television. A month at your place. And then someone, anyone who's listening, shrew me and take care of this CPTSD that I currently have, apparently. We may be able to sell this as Jodorowsky Fantasy Camp. <laughs> I think there's a there's probably a market for this on the internet somewhere. Uh, here's the here's the weirdest thing about that, dude. I have not even told you the weirdest shit about this movie. Okay, so and this comes from Jodorowsky. He said this in an interview. Supposedly, he wanted this movie to star George Harrison. And, and why not? And, yeah. Well, I'll tell you why not. Harrison turned down the opportunity. <laughs> I've got to say this with a straight face. Yeah, because I, I don't know what's happening. Because it would involve, <clears throat> quote, showing the camera his anus while frolicking in a fountain with a live hippopotamus. <laughs> Say that what is happening? Five you mean, times is that it, like that was in the script? <laughs> Apparently, dude. I mean, I, this, sound, this sounds like Lennon just like gave him money just to fuck with him, <laughs> to fuck with George. That doesn't sound like that's a real thing. He was like on There's the other no line. That's a real. That is fake. That is not a real thing in an interview. He he's, just said he's that on to the other that. line. He's on the other line listening. He's like in his living room. <laughs> Jodorowsky's in the kitchen. He's like, oh, tell George, you just have to be able to put the camera up his anus. <laughs> <laughs> My gosh. So, so here's the thing. Uh, this movie does come out, not with George Harrison in it, unfortunately. And it gets some double features, El Topo and then The Holy Mountain. They, it plays at Khan, and, and now Alan Klein is in the business of making movies. Oh, so, it's on. He's got yeah. two. And it's the thing he's always wanted to do. Wish. And he has like this star-ish director that he can now command. That's that's how it works in Alan Klein's head, right? Like, he's I've, I own this guy. So... He starts buying the rights to shit without consulting with Jodorowsky. <laughs> and he brings oh. him in and he goes, here's what I need you to do next. Next, we're doing the story of O. Do you know what that is? <laughs> yeah. I, I had a cinema <laughs> studies minor, dude. It came in very handy for this freaking question. It's like the French equivalent of Fifty Shades of Gray from the 50s. Is that right? <laughs> 
I, that's good. That's a quick, concise way to explain it. Klein buys the rights, hands it to Jodorowsky, and this is the true moment where we realize that no one understands what Jodorowsky thinks he's doing. Like, what they think he is doing is one thing, but what he thinks he's doing is very different because Jodorowsky is very offended by the source material about a woman's experiencing sadomasochism. Very upset. So, um, <laughs> so the quiet one, George, George's butthole, his bunghole, and a hippo is not a problem, but a, a woman in a sex cult yeah, it's, with it's over the line. that's over the line. Did you give me mushrooms? Like, what in the hell are we talking? What are we talking about? I thought, like, dude, it gets better. It gets better. So Klein is pissed. And remember, I told you, his thing is he fucks everybody over. Oh, you told us that, right? So he said, fine. If you're not going to do my movie, I am going to keep your movies. That motherfucker withdrew all of Jodorowsky's existing films from release for not one, not two, Almost three full decades. Oh my gosh. And, and if you think it couldn't get weirder, let me read you. <laughs> There's this famous Roger Ebert interview with Jodorowsky. It happens in 1989. And this is a quote about Klein and those movies. Klein made it disappear. He says, I'm waiting until you die and then I'm going to have a fortune. He thinks he's immortal. If he dies first, I get the film back. He's awaiting my death. He believes he can make more money from the film after I am dead. He says my film is like wine. It grows better with age. He's waiting like a vulture for me to die. And here's the best part. For 15 years, I've tried to talk to him by telephone, and he's always busy. He eats the smoking meat. Smoking meat, you know, from the delicatessen. When I call him by telephone, they say to me, he's eating the smoking meat. I cannot speak with him because he's eating the smoking meat. He's eating for 15 years the smoking meat. <laughs> that's, that's, that's in an interview? I swear for, to God, dude. <laughs> first... I can I can dig on a pastrami sandwich from cats. I know they're thirty dollars now, but I don't give a shit. I'll eat two of them. That's a really weird thing to say over and over again. I mean, I wonder if he was like not hammered saying that over He's and over. He's the king again. of the troll. He's been trolling people before trolling was a thing. Like this guy is the king. So this finally gets resolved in 05. Much to the light of film nerds everywhere, because by that time everybody's just in a panic about seeing the the weird, you know, guy with the naked baby on the horse bearing a teddy bear. Uh, and here, here's the great thing. Alan Klein dies in 2009. Guess what? Joe Dorowski's still fucking alive. He's like 92. Yeah. I'm going to make the money. I'm glad that you and I have made him sound like Count Dracula or the Count from Sesame Street. Three oh. movies. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, dude, it's so good. And we won't get into it because it doesn't pertain to our story now. But Jodorowsky continues on this batshit crazy path he's on. After this dust-up with Klein, he famously takes a job working to create the first film adaptation of the book Dune. <gasps> really? Yeah, so this it never happens. There's a whole 2013 documentary about this, and I put a link in the show notes. But like any of this or not, Jodorowsky has a huge influence on film and oh. culture and, and sort of on who he influences to create and interpret and reinterpret. So like David Lynch will cite him. Nicholas w uh, Wending Refn will cite him. Marilyn Manson brings him up. Darren Aronofsky, uh, Taika Waititi, Guillermo del Toro. They all will cite this guy as an influence. And if this is the case, 
that cast of characters most likely do really have John Lennon and Alan Klein to thank for that. Totally weird and totally true. Yeah. And, and that's not even taking into account the filmmaking influence that Jodorowsky gets attributed to him through that failed Dune project. So if you read it, this is the documentary makes this case that basically the notes that Jodorowsky's like all of the notes he takes while he's make, like trying to make that film and all of these storyboards he creates and all the concept art were sent to major film studios. And this documentary argues that these influenced and inspired Star Wars, the Alien series. Like the two of the guys that make Alien were working with Jodorowsky like a decade before on this Dune thing. Wow. And it goes on to make Alien. Flash Gordon, the Terminator, the Fifth Uh, Element. Flash Gordon, the Max von Sydow, Flash Gordon, 1980. That one, quarterback New York Jets, Flash Gordon. So without John Lennon, there may have never been Flash Gordon, Star Wars, or The Terminator. Who knows? But, I mean, you know, that, that's a thin argument, but it's a fun thought experiment. And it led me to another one, right? After this, I was like, what else can we can be attributed to Rockstar Patronage, right? Is yeah. there a similar story? Is there an analog in, like, another genre or another place? And we have this letter, and that's why I'm combining these into the same episode, right? So... This is from Charlie. Charlie wrote the show and said, "Is it true that Monty Python got Holy Grail got Search for the Holy Grail made with money from Pink Floyd?" Pink Floyd. Holy shit, dude. We get to talk about Monty Python and Search for the Holy Grail. <laughs> Pink Floyd. I wasn't prepared for that. So, thank goodness for being on the Scholars Bowl academic quickie call <laughs> team and being picked on and having to do that in front of a pep rally full of 800 people, one, three-time Tennessee State champs, by the way. Oh, my but God. But it was, it was because when I was a freshman, the seniors, they watched Monty Python. And then I found out he was on PBS. And so I could watch the Monty oh. Python show. And then it was on MTV for like a minute, just like the young ones. Really? Uh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I've probably talked about this before. But I was in an acting troupe in middle school, specifically created to perform at a church youth outreach event. I know that surprises everyone that's listened to more than one episode of this show. But it was run by a really cool dude named John, who I'm still friends with, who was really in to Monty Python and SNL. Like, 70s comedy was his thing. And so he's like 7 to 10 years older than us at the time, right? So he's like in his early to mid-20s. And he's like sort of this mentor. And he would create all these sketches for us to do and they were basically just like ripping off or sort of reinterpreting stuff from SNL and Python that that I, for one, had never seen. So like right. I actually weirdly, this is the long way around to explain that I was performing versions of Monty Python before I ever actually saw Monty Python. Yes. I remember, this I remember about you. There was this sketch based on the Spanish Inquisition. Like I had no idea what that was. Uh, historically or comedically. And and I think there was probably one based on on the spam stuff. But during that time period, he did want us to know what he was aping. He wasn't like trying to hide it. So there was a specific night where he got tons of pizza and we all went over to his house and watched Monty Python and Search for the Holy Grail. And this was like a big moment in that it opened me up to a style of comedy that I wasn't really seeing, right? Because another thing I talk about a lot is that I grew up as a young kid, like in elementary school, middle school, really obsessed with radio comedy from the 30s and 40s, right? So I had this American comedy sensibility, but I hadn't really seen British comedy. And it, it, it is different. You know, like people will warn you. Like it is very, very different. Do you have a favorite bit or moment in Holy Grail? Oh, yeah. 
It's the big pointy things. <laughs> and then the actual attack and aftermath of the rabbit of of the attack. Yeah, where you can see like the bodies and the rabbits walking away. Oh, and there's like the little old lady who stand. That's my favorite part. Every time. It's I'm, worth it to watch the whole freaking movie to get to there. I, there's so many. There's so many things in this movie that I still quote without any sort of context. I mean, I'm sure there's things my kids would hear later. They'll probably watch this movie at some point and be like, that's what dad was referencing. Like the coconuts are classic, of course. Uh, your mother was a hamster. Your father smells of elderberries, something I still quote fairly often. The bring out your dead, I'm dead gag is classic. Um, and, and this movie like doesn't make sense on paper. No, even watching it, it kind of seems disjointed and weird. I think to understand the gamble of even making it, you have to like revisit the origins of Monty Python as a whole. So do you want to do this? Could, do you know enough about the Pythons, as they used to be called? Yeah, yeah. So imagine six writers. So it's all British guys and writers in the right. 60s. I mean, that's the thing, right? It, it's a bunch of, of writers, which explains a lot about the British sensibility and just sort of the awkwardness. Yeah, and how... You know how it kind of all came together when you're watching it, and how it feels like a little. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily feel like a collective all the time or whatever. But anyway, so they end up writing for a late night show, and that was the Flying Circus. And, and this is like not a comedy history pod, though we have we you know we're comedy. Old, we used to be comedy podcasters, so we don't have to go too deep on what it is that they accomplish and try. But it's just important to know that they really break a lot of ground on what was acceptable in mainstream comedy, and not in a like they could cuss or like look there was a nudity. It wasn't like a tawdry thing with them. It was about how they did things like just in delivery and style yeah there's no punchlines. what yeah right like it's that was just, a big it's thing it's just like yeah it's just like the 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 punchline was totally different and it's how the comedy hit as they as the kids would say these days well and so because it's totally different how the jokes end land feel all of it and it goes on, this show that they create, The Flying Circus, goes on for a few years. It runs to like 74. It grows this big fan base. And in the midst of all this, they're looking for ways to capitalize on how popular it's getting. I'm sure other people who want to make money off them are looking for this too. But the first thing they do is this theatrical release they, they call Now for Something Completely Different. It's basically like a compilation of their best moments, right? So it's not really a, a movie. Great, A great name, really. It really is. But... Then they start thinking about how they could make their own movie. And this is a hard sell, though, because, you know, I mean, this wasn't the age that we live in now where there's all of these different companies trying their hand at where it's like, you know, like if, I think if you and I pitched Roku hard enough, we could get our own TV show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if you got in the right room with a, you know, you had the right uncle or aunt, you could probably get on some sort of streaming service somewhere, right? But here, they're, yeah. they're, in, they're in Britain, so you know it's the BBC, and they're going to film studios, and they're like, we, we could do a movie, but there's a, they're an ensemble, so there's not like a clear one forward-facing star. Right. There, there wasn't a ready-made hook, because they were doing all these one-off sketches, and like, by comparison, when SNL would take something and adapt a sketch into a movie it was a reoccurring character that they had built out. So you had the Blues Brothers, or later you would have Wayne's World, or the Coneheads, but you didn't have just these... It, it wasn't amorphous, right? And it wasn't standalone where you were just taking the people from SNL and putting them in a movie where they were recreating something from history, which is then what they sort of try to pitch. Right. 
And then to make the whole idea for the movie even more difficult, they decided to pitch an idea of, let's do King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, I mean, which seems like a round square in a as I already said, hole. it does not look good on paper. And there, th- no film studio is touching this thing, right? No one wants to float them the cash. But remember, they've been doing the show, but they've also been doing comedy albums. Oh, so like Tony Stratton Smith and Charisma Records, right? Dude, you're all over it. Yes. Uh, let's talk about Tony. T- tell us about Tony Stratton Smith. So his legacy is Genesis. So he finds and champions that band oh my god but he started as a sports journalist and he saw what epstein did with the beatles and how often they needed someone to guide them and and so he takes over managing a band that epstein had been with called cobus the cobus cobus <laughs> they, yeah. they did not do much but eventually he gets genesis he gets genesis right and both their albums and their management contract after the first record so he's significant in their in the in the genesis of Genesis. I know. We haven't talked enough about Genesis on the show. That's probably coming. We, we probably need to do a series on Genesis. But uh, pretty quickly, he moves his attention to building a label. And he, he that's where, really where his passion is. He quits managing. He passes that off to somebody else. But Tony's whole thing was just about pursuing and putting out the stuff he was passionate about. And there's this quote. There's a ladder sound piece about him. And, and I liked this. I pulled this out. There's a quote that just says, Charisma became an extension of Stratton Smith. That's important to point out here because when he got behind something, whether it was Genesis or some weird jazz he was into or whatever, or comedy, he was all in. They were all passion projects. So he puts out Monty Python's comedy, and when they're looking to do an original film and the studios are hesitant, he's ready to help. And this is how it happens. The idea becomes, let's pitch rock bands. And Tony starts rolling. He says, here's some of my cash, and then let's go talk to Genesis. And so Chrysalis and two other record labels will contribute. And then some of the biggest names in rock. You want to run us down some of these? Um, like So Pink Floyd, right? Well, and Pink Floyd famously was trying to find something to do with the cash that they were flush with now from Dark Side of the Moon. And you had Zeppelin, yep. right? Uh-huh. And Jethro Tull, too. Yeah, Ian Anderson, yeah. Yeah. And I, I believe Elton John's involved. Like, I think... A- this, here's the thing, though. Here's the, here's the thing that if you dig a little deeper into this, right? This is a great fun headline. You're like, look, it's Rebels, and they're supporting Rebels. Or you're like, well, rock guys are big fans of comedy guys, right? Like, it's a narrative you hear a lot now. Or it's like, oh, co- comedians want to be rock stars. No, rock stars want to be comedians. Maybe that's some of it. But that's not really the sell here from a practical standpoint. It comes back to something much more practical and something that we have talked about on the show quite a bit. Uh, you want to... You want to guess what that is? Oh, it's the British taxes. Right? <laughs> it's British taxes. Speaking of the... I don't, they don't want to pay their stinking taxes, the so, British. Look what they got everyone into everywhere. So like, this, and we talked about continent. this so much on the show, but this is a big theme in the 70s. You can never forget this if you're a rock and roll person. Remember, British artists in the 70s were driven... The, the, the successful ones were driven by, what the fuck do I do with all this... Like, how do I keep this money? Because otherwise, I've just got to give it back to the government. And that's Exile on Main Street. You know, we run down the list, right? But speaking to The Guardian in 1978, this is so funny. It's so glib. David Gilmore says, quote, having to go to board meetings and meetings with investment companies. You either give money to the tax man or you stick it into businesses. There are all sorts of things I wouldn't normally think about, but it's got to go somewhere. So there's things like a higher car company. So like, I, I guess maybe he at some point owns it taxi cab company uh, an electronics company and a slice of the last monty python film literally this comes back at least somewhat 
to the insane British tax rate. Right. And Terry Gilliam talking to the Guardian here from Terry Gilliam, it's of course from Monty Python. We haven't like sort of jumped into the names of all the, the folks in that group. Uh, but he says, quote, there was no studio interference when we were making Holy Grail because there was no studio. None of them would give us money. This was at the time that income tax was running as high as 90%, so we turned to rock stars for finance. Elton John, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, they all had money, they knew our work, and we seemed like a good tax write-off. So here's the other thing. They all think this is going to fail. So part of the reason it's advantageous for them to give the money to Monty Python is that they'll probably not see it again. And so it helps them write it off their taxes. If it's successful, it's just more money to tax, right? And this is yeah. where things accidentally go sideways because the movie does really well. <laughs> yeah, which is so funny because they had no budget, right? So um, <laughs> estimates I saw had their total budget at like the British equivalent of like $400,000 at the time, which even now is like not $2 million. Yeah. Does everyone that's listening right now officially understand the coconuts a little more? Do you want to explain this? This is so funny to me. Well, don't you understand the budget, the casting? Yeah. I mean, I guess they are able to get someone to cut those coconuts in half, and that's that was it. pretty they, much cheaper yeah. than getting the horses. <laughs> they, so they were literally going to get horses, is what you're getting at. This was the idea. And then they can't get the horses, and so they're like, what are we going to do? And and that I mean that becomes for me one of the most lingering legacies of that film is the coconuts bit. And I, I there could be somebody here who's like never like just listening has never seen this film, but like we haven't explained what the coconuts bit is. But it's instead of horses, it's people walking behind the knights of the round table, clacking together coconuts as the sound of hooves hitting the you know. And the whole time you see it as the audience that they're like, "Come on, let's go!" And then they're pretending to ride horses, and there's a guy clacking coconuts. Yeah, and. It's perfect. You get it. Your sus- the suspension of disbelief is right there in your face, and it's perfect. And you get it, and you understand it. But now, as you're listening more to Brian and I, you understand the the reason was because they couldn't afford anything else except the coconuts, and they made the same noise. There, so. there is some sort of like lecture to children about you know. Sometimes genius is born out of necessity, but I'm just going to leave it there and say. What a fucking great movie. Uh, here, right. here, here's, here's an amazing thing. So this is only part one of Monty Python and the Rockstars. They actually don't do it on purpose, but they end up utilizing this method of funding again uh, very shortly. It, the story goes that in 78, they plot this follow-up to the Holy Grail that will go on to be known as the Life of Brian. Do you have a relationship with that movie? Yeah, I don't like it as much, but I know who, who uh, funded that thing. Oh, he's back in the story, guys. His butthole is covered, and he's back. Uh, <laughs> so the studio initially agrees to to you back. Don't have life to of look Brian. at my butthole at all this time, Brian. <laughs> I'll be here, the life of Brian, and you don't have to look at me bum so, or me hole so, in the fountain with him. The, you know. <laughs> the, the, the studio backs them this time. They're like, "Cool, here's four million dollars." So they, they basically made this other movie for. Three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars, and then the studio's like, "Oh, it was a huge success. I guess we can give you four million. So they're on a four million dollar budget. They are Thursday to Sunday to making this movie. Everybody's about to leave their homes on Sunday and go on location to shoot. And on Thursday, 
the fucking head of the studio is like, oh, I guess I should look at this script. So he pulls out the script. <laughs> and they see what it's about. And they're like, oh, shit. This movie's making fun of religion. What? They pull all the funding. They pull all the funding. Eric, you know, he's, he's buddies. Eric Idle from Monty Python is buddies with George Harrison. And he calls him, and they're talking about, you know, what's going on. And George Harrison's like, eh, I'll get you the money. And Eric's like, no, 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 dude. It's like $4 million. And George's ah, I'll get you the money. And this, this is supposedly what he says. He says that Python got me through the Beatles breakup. I owe you one. He, and he, he mortgaged his house. He mortgages yeah. his fucking house. And this yeah. will begin Harrison's brief foray into the film world. He will go on to fund Time Bandits. Which is a, oh, I love this movie. One of my favorites. Holler. And there's several other productions uh, that he will fund for a while. It lasts about a decade. 91, they shut it down. But unbelievable shit right there. Uh, so, yes. So, to, to, to draw that to a close, we've got two things here, right? We've got Lennon. And he's very yeah. passionate about, you know, this avant-garde, titillating cinema that he's seeing at midnight, and he puts his money where his mouth is. And then we have a whole cluster of British rock stars who are trying to avoid their taxes, but they also like comedy, and they support what becomes a genre-defying, and we didn't even talk about the influence of Monty Python and Search for the Holy Grail, but almost, you talk to anybody who is currently between the ages of what, like 35 and 60, and they... You know, especially dudes, I feel like, uh, have some sort of very visceral relationship with this movie. Uh, and, and, and that goes for tons of filmmakers and comedians and stuff who've come along since. So, so this is, these are huge cultural things, and they do, I think, shape and change movie making. But right. I've, got one, I've got one more letter. Do we have room for this? Is it about the most fabulous object in the universe, Brian? <laughs> and it, it, it's a little different. I'm, I'm throwing this one in because this idea of rock stars using their money to help someone else achieve their vision, right? And the, the other two stories, the vision has been film and films with big cultural effects. But this last one, one ups the others. And it, it's because it ups the ante. What, what if the vision that someone has is not about a film or about pushing buttons politically, but actually changing the outcome politically. The vision that your rock star respects and wants to see come to fruition. What if that vision is, who is the president of the United States? Yeah, I, I know where this one's going. You I'm think excited. you do? Okay. Yes, yeah, so so who's the who's our letter from? Letters from CR in Madison. Thank you for listening. Uh, writes, story guys, is it true that the Allman Brothers contributed a bunch of money to help Jimmy Carter run for president? I had an uncle who used to complain about that. LOL. <laughs> we all had that uncle, man. Well, CR, there's a document documentary about this right now. Um, and, you know, this artist and this politician are both from Georgia. So what is that called? It's on HBO Max, isn't it? It's ro- Jimmy Carter, rock and roll president. Okay. I've seen it more than once. Now, it's really like the documentary, correct me if I'm wrong, is about how Carter was sort of the first president to openly align himself overall with rock, right? So I know the Allman Brothers play into it. I want to focus on the Almonds, but the doc hits on this whole thing where like, and it's funny because I like just hadn't done the math, but he wasn't even part of growing up with rock and roll. Like Jimmy Carter was old enough to where like when Dylan goes electric, Jimmy Carter's like... 42. <laughs> so right. so he's, he's not, he, for any of that cultural change, he's like sort of past the precipice. But 
he grows this appreciation. He has kids that are growing up with rock and roll, and he's like really open to it. And he he loves Dylan. Like Jimmy Carter's a Dylan guy, right? But he's from Georgia, and, and he's he, a farmer. He yeah, and he embraces the almonds. And there's this uh, the doc and the Rolling Stone article. The Rolling Stone article is is from 2020, and I think it comes out around the same time as the doc, and it's in the show notes. And one thing that it points out that I forget is that before even rock and roll, one thing that set Carter apart, especially given who he was and where he was from, is that he's really in on civil rights from, from oh, a pretty early point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a fascinating documentary. It's on HBO Max or soon to be just Max. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Thank you for uh, that. No free so, ads. Yeah. When it so built. He starts dipping his toes in those waters when he's running for governor. So remember, oh. he's, he's from Georgia. And and remember, if we've listened to the show before, we've talked about Capricorn Records. That's Their that's home a, was in the, the, the uh, I forget that's state. a Georgia label. Yeah. Who was yeah, on that? Almonds, CDB, Charlie Daniels oh, Band. Shit. The best band with a flute. Not Jethro Tull, Marshall Tucker. <laughs> I have to say it again. And and Carter, like he he gets to be friends with a guy from Capricorn, right? What's that guy's name? Phil. Uh, it's Phil Walden. Yeah. Is his name. And he doesn't just hang out with rock stars though. Like he makes enough changes while he's governor because he does become governor, and they all buy into it, right? Because a, a, and this is like if you're not from Georgia. You don't know a lot of about Georgia history. Like at this period in the seventies, Georgia's not a place people really want to live. It doesn't have a great reputation, and he he does a lot of things to bring it up, you know, in, in sort of esteem for people. And just like Jodorowsky and the Pythons, uh, he casts his vision, and the rock stars of Georgia they they buy into it, and they want the rest of the country to see it. So this is their equivalent of, of a midnight film, right? Or a, a comedy movie. Right. But I have to actually answer the question. And that question that was asked by CR is, did the Almonds contribute a bunch of money to Carter's campaign? And technically, the answer is no. Yeah, I always thought it was yes. Well, was okay, negative. so I, I'm being very technical about this, right? But this story actually shows how damn savvy Jimmy Carter was. So here's what he did. This is what they did do. They played rock shows for the Jimmy Carter campaign. And people would come and come to these rock shows and then proceeds would go to support the campaign. My understanding is the Almonds didn't necessarily cut him checks. They gave in kind of their services to, you know, play rock and roll music. So here's the thing that Jimmy Carter did, though. Dude was fucking smart. So remember this little thing called Watergate? Something like that. Yeah, so there's this whole thing that happens after Watergate where there's like matching federal funds, okay? And if you raise a certain amount of money, then there's a federal like grant that kicks in and, and gives you that same amount of money. So this is what he does. When he has these concerts and when fans buy tickets to come to these concerts, they're asked to sign vouchers that include their addresses. And so if they pay 10 bucks for the ticket or 2 bucks for the ticket or whatever, it becomes a Carter campaign contribution. That's great. Isn't this crazy? So yeah. he could prove that the tickets amounted to small donations and thus they qualified for this matching federal fund. This is a Dickie Betts quote. Jimmy was smart. 
the way he explained it, the government had this program and they'll match any funds someone donates to me and there's a way I want to work this, which is totally legit. I don't want you guys to donate any funds to me. I want you guys to donate your time to me and whatever money we can raise, the government has to match it. We raised millions of dollars, which back then was a lot of goddamn money, and we never talked about it in interviews or nothing. But the reason we did it is because he totally changed the attitude about Georgia. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah. So they technically didn't give him money, but they were big fans, and they made it possible for a whole lot of Americans not used to making campaign contributions to sort of make campaign contributions they didn't know they were making and get their money doubled. He was a savvy dude, man. Oh, yeah. And what it's really interesting, too, if you read or watch, and I don't know if, they, I think they touch on this in Doc, but the Rolling Stone piece also makes, uh, sort of draws this conclusion to the presidency, right? Where, like, Carter sort of goes down in flames. He is not thought of as an incredible or, or effective president by a lot of people. And <laughs> they're, they're able to sort of say, like, as Southern Rock and the Almonds, like, and and the record label in Georgia, like all that stuff sort of implodes at the same time as Jimmy Carter's, you know, stay in the White House implodes, which I thought was an interesting, if maybe stretching the narrative a little bit, uh, it is a, a very interesting thing to see, like, you know, here comes the 80s, here comes Reagan, you know, out with the, with the Marshall Tucker band and Charlie Daniels, in with Wham, you know, it's just like all these these cultural changes changes that are happening at the same time but really a fascinating story but we do know we do know now with carter that there was a um institutionalized uh way to try to make sure that there is absolutely no way he would be reelected by making sure that the hostages that were being held overseas were not going to be released while he was president uh, and that was told in first person by a guy who traveled around the world and told people not to release the prisoners. So um, I don't really think that Carter had the charisma of Reagan and probably wasn't going to win anyway. Yeah. But but uh, but that sucks that he got hosed that way. But he's turned out to be the best post president that we've had. And I mean, no one's going to argue with the statement I just made. Yeah. Wow. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's no way to argue that. Carter hasn't been the the best. It'd be fantastic if uh, George Harrison and Jimmy Carter and Alan Klein were all buddies. <laughs> I be- thought you were going to say if they if they were all butt naked in a fountain with a hippopotamus. Oh, he had to. Sh- oh, now I can see <laughs> their bubbles. Wow, uh, dude, we covered a lot of ground. I'm proud of us, man. What yeah, an episode. We. we- did everything thanks for sending us the letters because obviously without your letters this episode yeah, would have never existed we are the story guys gmail.com is how you send us another one instagram.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories you can hang out there you can check out our website that's we are the story guys.com patreon that's a thing uh you can check that out patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories you got a couple dollar bills floating around in your pocket five of them ten of them send them our way once a month and get extra bonus episodes a weekly newsletter and more um, and let me see. Uh, until next time, what should people keep doing? Murdoch? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved. <laughs>